I'd like to do something that we did last week. I'm not going to do everything I had up here. Andrew, uh, who is not here, Andrew, do a, yeah, he took a picture of what I wrote up here, which was an absolute mess. But uh, I'm not going to go through this again, but last week we took about two or three minutes and just listed some of the attributes of God. And then, then we talked about, and uh, I drew a stick person here, that the human being, um, in terms of the response to God and who he is and his attributes, can respond either with sin, rebellion, disobedience, etc., <clears throat> or a response of faith, trust, or obedience. We have to choose which one of those we will respond to uh, in terms of God, uh, to God and His attributes. Now, I'm assuming most of you would want to be on this side of the response category. We want to be people of faith, we want to be men who trust in the Lord, and we want to be men who are seeking to be obedient to Him. There's so many other things we could list here, but I think that gets the, that gets the, uh, gets the point. Solomon calls this person a wise person. The person who chooses to respond to God by sin, and rebellion against Him, and by disobedience to His moral law, His values, His ethical standards, Solomon calls this person a fool. Now for, it's hard to know exactly how many years you would say this for Solomon, but for Solomon, a chunk of his adult life, he lived like this. And although he considered and, and talks about the virtues of wisdom and so on, um, he will tell us, and he sort of hints at that even today in, in what I want to focus on chapter 7, this is the way I live my life. And I found out this, this was not very wise. This was foolish and stupid. And so, as we move into chapter 7 this morning, keeping, keeping this, it's kind of sloppy and messy, but keeping this framework is helpful to understand what Solomon's doing. And today, um, as we move into chapter 7, he's going to be dealing with uh, things like prosperity and adversity. Um, times of our life when, and not only prosperity in terms of material wealth and things like this, but prosperity in terms of, of you know, fairly good health, um, stability in life, those kinds of things. And yet, um, also, there's times in life when there's great adversity. Sickness, death of a loved one, somebody we care about, um, perhaps poverty, so it's, Solomon is saying, okay, here are these two things. How does the wise man respond to these things? And how does the fool respond to these things? Because both the wise man and the fool is going to experience those. And so he, that's one of the really, really important values of chapter 7. Because... 
the natural the natural response is well if I'm wise and I'm living my life with these character traits and these qualities shouldn't I therefore be prosperous healthy what, what did Ben Franklin used to say healthy wealthy wise Solomon says no not necessarily and so as we start chapter 7 this morning I I want you to kind of keep all this stuff in mind because now he raises the issue of adversity, prosperity. The kind of life you live as a wise person or you choose to live as a fool um, does not necessarily impact whether you're going to have a prosperous life or life of great adversity. All right, now I've laid down some markers. Are you with me? This is really important. So I liked, and I said this here in the notes on page 12, um, and I underlined that. Verse 14 in, 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 is probably the most important verse of this section. So I'd like to read that, and then we'll keep coming back to verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not discover anything that will be after him. I'll I'll talk about that last phrase or last clause in a minute. But do you see see what he's saying here? And again, I think kind of this is the key verse. In the day of prosperity, be happy. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Sometimes we struggle with the right words to use when we talk about these things and have God as the subject. Um, But just because you experience adversity doesn't mean any of the aspects of God have changed. Just because you experience adversity doesn't mean, well, therefore I should now be a fool. That's not necessarily the right conclusion. So let's start to investigate this together. Oh, please, absolutely. So prosperity and adversity don't exactly seem to be parallel things. Prosperity talks to the idea of wealth. Adversity talks to the idea of difficulty, which may or may not be financial. But prosperity seems to have the concept of financial aspect to it. I'm not sure that um, because... We're, we're, you know, we're translating a Hebrew word here, so um, I think part of the challenge for you and me uh, as Americans is when we read a translation like prosperity, we immediately think Wall Street, hedge funds, and lots of wealth. <laughs> and I don't think that's necessarily the, the, the right way to think about this in terms of, of the Hebrew mind to which this was written. Because prosperity, and it, it can mean and, and, and often does mean the focus on material things, material blessing, let's put it that way. But Jim, it can also mean the blessing of, of health, of stability, of uh, you know, relative tranquility in life, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and so all of that is a part of the, of, of the prosperous life. Now, the connection that sometimes is made, well, my wealth is what enables me to be stable, live a very predictable life, and I can buy almost anything so I can buy good medical care, too, type of thing. 
Again, that's not necessarily the only meaning that's carried with the term prosperity. So it's about 60% material wealth, but that's not all it is. You know, Jim and I, as we were, well, we weren't coming up the elevator. He let me in the elevator. We both have a mutual friend who uh, not too many weeks ago lost his wife um, to a, to a heart, heart attack, uh, actually. And it was very unexpected, uh, although she had had some history of heart issues. It hadn't been something that they were particularly thinking about at that moment. Uh, and that's a shock. And this guy that, again, Jim and I both know him fairly well, He's a very, he's a sterling guy. I mean, he's on, he's on, the, fa- on the faculty of the school where I was president for a long time. And so uh, he's just one of those guys you really, you always can depend on him. He is really reeling with that now. Now Jim, uh, a number of years ago, lost his uh, first wife. Um, and so I think it's really great that Jim's able to, to reach out and just be there for, for Ron. But that's adversity. And that's, you know, Solomon says God's made the one as well as the other. Did uh, Jerry's death sneak up on God, the blind side? Did God miss that one? Did, you know, is that something that God was in control of? Well, you can't say that, again, if you come back to all the attributes of God. And so you have to say, all right. Given that God is sovereign, given that his providence is real, given that God is good in his nature, etc., how do I, as a person who's a, who's a wise person in Solomon's uh, uh, terminology, a person of faith and trust in God, a person who's seeking to be obedient to God, how do you process that? How do you process adversity? Mm-hmm. And the example that I was using here with our mutual friend, how do you process that? That's what Solomon is raising here. Because if you are seeking to live a wise life, you're seeking to be a wise person, which again, among many other things, we would characterize in this way, then how do you process that? And so it's, um, it's a, it's, if I use the word conundrum, do you know, that's a great word. Conundrum, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult, perplexing, seeming contradiction of life. If God is good and God is sovereign and I'm seeking to live a life of faith and trust in him and obedience to him and my wife is, dies unexpectedly, where are you, God? I thought you were good. That's the, that's the immediate and in, in, in almost in, intuitive and impulsive response. And another thing, the prosperity... How do you process, process that? Is the person going to think it's because I'm a God-fearing man and I'm doing well and I'm working hard and I'm going to take some credit for that? Mm. Uh, God likes me. He's blessing. God likes me. He likes what I'm doing, so He's blessing me. So yep. I'm a little bit better than the guy. With the exactly. Right? Exactly. Exactly. The uh, that's great. You guys are getting it. That's just the stuff that Solomon is raising in chapter seven. Because these are the, the, the various things we've been talking about. These are the, the gut issues of life. And how do you respond to that? Because, again, and even the disciples when Jesus was, public ministry was going on, they were making the assumption that, Lord, 
the rich, the rich, you, you favor them a little more, don't you? They're, they're, they got the inside track with you. And Jesus says, no. I don't know if you remember, I think it's in John chapter 10. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a blind man there in Jerusalem, and, and the disciples come up, hey, Jesus, Jesus, by the way, did this man sin or did his parents sin? What's the connection they're making? He is blind because, and Jesus challenges that, no. No, don't, don't, don't make that connection necessarily. So I love chapter 7 because it is, it is getting at these kind of gut issues of life. Because it is challenged throughout the Bible. Just because a person is wealthy and healthy, they got the inside track with God, and and, and no, not necessarily. Go Don't back conclude. To chapter six, we discussed contentment last week. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as I look at it, it looks to me like the, the person that has the prosperity would be more likely to have the contentment. And, and how would somebody with adversity, uh, like I said, process that yeah. and, and know that that was? Well, the next the next sentence in that verse, they talked about. Well, you said you were going to follow up. <laughs> <laughs> well, if if that thesis which you are posing, uh, uh, Woody, is correct, then the United States of America should be the most contented nation on earth. Is it? It's probably the opposite. It's it's the most discontented and dissatisfied nation on earth. And that's a very broad stroke and an almost very cynical statement to make. But um, I, I, I do not see that in the United States. If prosperity should naturally lead to contentment, the United States violates that proposition every day. That, and I, because there's something missing. All right, well, let's begin to explore this with Solomon. Now, remember, and I, I think I say this each time we're together, Solomon, and that's what Ecclesiastes is, Solomon is speaking in Proverbs for the most part. You know what I mean by a proverb? It's like a, a general statement. So he starts in verse 1. Now, again, remember what's going on in the large chapter. A good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Which is really two proverbial statements that are really interesting to think about. Now, first of all, let's let's do the first part of chapter of verse one. A good name is better than a good ointment. Well, you and I wouldn't think of ointment. <laughs> but ointment in the ancient world was a luxury. And you because in an arid climate uh, which is what much of the Middle East is, you you would put on your skin ointment. You would put on your, you, some of you, it would be perfumed and all that. Why? Because that was just necessary almost for life. And the very, very, very wealthy had very exotic ointments that came from Egypt and southern parts of Arabia and so on. But what does it mean a good name is better than a good ointment? What does it mean by that? What would be another? What would be another term for a good name? What would be another it's way? Your reputation. To, your reputation. Your reputation. 
have a reputation is better than smelling good. Yeah, 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 exactly. So what does he mean by that? A good reputation is better than expensive ointment. Because all those things can be temporary. They're all temporal. And your reputation really is the essence of who you are. Exactly. What are some of the things that govern a person's reputation? Do you know what I mean by that question, govern or determine or, Jim? Honesty and integrity. Honesty and integrity. Good character. And all of those qualities that you're talking about there, how, how, do, you, how do you see those things, how do you observe those things that result in me concluding Jim's a man of good reputation? He, the name Jim Beck, that, that's a respectable name. I, I know that guy. I know By his actions. By his actions. Jim? I was just going to say, my, my father, and one of the most valuable things he passed on to me, and I hope I've lived up to it, is um, he wanted the family name to be viewed as one that represented good character and honesty and he, he valued that more than money. He would mm. pay more in taxes than he had to because he didn't want to create mm. any question. He would, anytime there was a disagreement with someone, he would more sacrifice on mm. his part in order to protect the, the integrity of his name. And when I kind of get the sense of that that's where Solomon exactly, was. That's exactly, what he, that's exactly what he And your reputation, your name, is exhibited... By, in, in what you say and how you live your life. That's what people see. That's how your reputation is established. Is this a person of integrity? Well, I don't know. But let me follow him around for six months and I'll probably be able to tell you. Well, if that's true, then what's the second proverb mean? How do they connect? And a day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. I'm, my, my son and his wife in England are expecting their first child, our first grandchild. and I mean, we're excited about that. I mean, we just can hardly wait. It's going to December. I mean, it's just, it's a fantastic thing uh, for us and for them. And that's going to be a joyful, ex- exuberant event for our family. But I have no idea. His name, by the way, is George James Peter Ekman. That's his name. They've already named him. So I have no idea what kind of life George is going to live. Joyful beginning. The end of his life is better than the beginning because the end of his life, what will have been established? What kind of man was he? What kind of contribution did he make? Did he make a difference? That's what Solomon is saying. The beginning of life, joyful, but you have no idea what that person's going to be like. Now, of course, as you know, that doesn't mean you can't influence that. <laughs> Goodness, that's what parenting and grandparenting are all about. But the, the point Solomon's making is a person's name and contribution and and, and the value of, of why they are, why God's given them life is not established at the beginning, it's established at the end. 
I studied under a man who, <clears throat> when I was doing my graduate work at seminary, is what I mean, but I studied under a man who said, men, your goal must always be finish well. That's a, that's two phrase, two word, two word phrase. Finish well. That's what Solomon's saying here. The beginning of life is joyful, anticipation, excitement, but you have no idea what that person's going to be like. Remember, at one time, Adolf Hitler was a beautiful little German Austrian boy. I don't think his mother had any idea the child she had just given birth to. Joseph Stalin, at one time, he, he was born in Georgia, this, uh, at that time province now, it's an independent country of Georgia. His parents had no idea what kind of butcher he would become. You wouldn't say his name was a good name. Solomon is saying, as you look at life, a wise person, a person with faith and trust in God, is, is a person who will establish a good name. And that's so much more important than anything else. All right. Isn't that true? I mean, that really is true. And I've, Peggy and I have talked about this a great deal over the last uh, month and a half or so since we, we've known uh, we were going to have a grandchild about you know, what kind of a boy is he going to be? What's he going to be like, you know? And they keep coming back to the fact, one, one we've got to pray <coughs> for him. Two, we have to do everything we can to try to and, and influence all of the things that will be going on in his life as Jonathan and Irene raising. So the first phrase and the second phrase are definitely connected in Solomon's Absolutely. thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. But they seem so different. I don't think so. They're parallel statements. Good name is better than ointment. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's. Better in the sense of having greater influence, more lasting, more significant. Because again, how does one establish a good name? How does one establish a good reputation? Not at birth. By the end of your life, that's when you know. Okay? you got to think about this. That's good. Well, we have one verse down, and it's quarter after 12. So, Verse 2 through 4 is another unit, and I, I'm following in the notes as well. But this is... This gets again at, the, at, at what is going on in this section. The highlight of it is verse 14. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of the fool is in the house of pleasure. <clears throat> Seems like some bizarre statements there. Almost exactly the opposite of what you and I think. It's better to go to the house of mourning than in the house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. What does he mean by that? No, it's not rhetorical. I'd like you to think about it with me. Well, I think there's nothing more sobering than going to a funeral. 
And I mean, it's very provocative in terms of what it makes you think about what's really important how, how one lives. Jim, you've nailed it. That's exactly right. Um, what did you go to Ron's? I was out of town. You were out of town. Okay, that was uh, that was incredible. Uh, one of the most unusual ones I've ever been to. It's more of a memorial service than the funeral service per se. But yeah, that was really interesting to, to observe, be a part of that, uh, listen to some of the things that were said about Jerry, his wife. Um, did you all hear what Jim said? What do you didn't hear what Jim said? No. Okay. Do you, can you repeat some of it? Oh, it was just what he said. Going to a funeral is a very pro provocative experience because it does cause one to think about life and death and how one lives and what's really important in life. Okay. That, he is just, Jim, and that's why I asked him to repeat it, Jim has just captured what Solomon is saying, two, three, and four. It's, it's not that laughter and joy at the time of eating a good meal or feasting, the way he puts it, is wrong. But feasting and laughing and levity and all of those things are very, very, very short and kind of narrow. And it's not that that's wrong, but Solomon is saying sober reflection on the value and meaning of life doesn't occur at a party. That's what he's saying. It's not, he's not making a value judgment that going to a party and having fun is evil. That's not what he's saying. Remember the theme of this section. And so he's saying, and I can't say any better than Jim said it, really. A funeral or a memorial service is a very sober thing. Because it's a mixture of, you know, the grief that goes with the loss of someone you know or care about mixed to some extent with the joy and certainty and comfort that you know that person, assuming they're a believer, is with the Lord. And that, so, but that's the emotions of a, of a of funeral service, memorial service, are just roller coaster like emotions. But it's sobering. It causes you to reflect. And he says at the end of verse 2, the end of every man. The end of every man is death. And the living should take that to heart. You, you, you cannot ignore that. And so he reaches a conclusion in verse 4, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. A wise person is a person who has given sober, conscious reflection on the meaning and value and purpose of life. Because it's short. The brevity of life, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 67, but I, I look, I don't, one, I don't feel 67, I don't know what you should, I don't know how you should feel at 67, but I don't feel, but I look, I can't, I think, I can't believe that I've lived 60, almost 67 years. And I know one thing for sure, I'm not going to live another 67 years. One, I don't really want to live 67 years, but, you know, maybe 15, 20, maybe a few more minutes. But, And it's just, Solomon is saying, a wise person, mind and heart are in the house of the morning. Now, what does he mean by that? We're, we're, we're you know, always, never a glimmer of hope, never a smile. That's not what he means. 
He's just saying the wise person understands the brevity of life and the importance of having a good name and a good reputation. This is this isn't too depressing. The day is, <laughs> but it's just, it's what it's really what makes it's really what makes the difference between a fool and a wise. The fool is the person, you know, on this side of our stick man, but their life is a life of partying and feasting. That's all they do. They live for the moment, with no reflection, no sober thought about the brevity of life and I seek to make a contribution that means something that's eternally significant from God's perspective that's what Solomon means where the mind of the fool is in the house of pleasure the fool lives for the moment a wise man lives for eternity that's another way of saying what he's he's, uh, suggesting here All right, third paragraph, or third section is verse 5 and verse 6. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This too is futility. Now, I think this this uh, section, these two verses, uh, it's almost self-evident what he's saying. To have a teachable spirit is a mark of wisdom. I put it a little differently, but it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man. What does the word rebuke mean? In this case, uh, a correction okay. of sorts, um, okay. guidance. Or guidance, counsel, and those things, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good, that fits here. Mm-hmm. So he says it's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man. Did you ever put your arm around somebody and say, do you have a minute? We'll go for a cup of coffee. I want to talk to you about a couple of things I'm seeing. Did you ever do that to somebody? Now, I have the privilege uh, most of my life of being in higher education so I do that a lot with young men a lot with young men just pull them aside and say a couple of things to them it's, it's, it usually stems from things that are going on in the class that you know, I, I think they can do a lot better let's talk a little bit about this but that's a rebuke now the fool is going to say well how dare you who do you think you are saying anything to me that's the fool's response The wise response is, thank you. The teachable spirit, the malleable spirit. Um, Do we have to say any more about that? I mean, I know it's kind of clear and evident what he's saying, but, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's much, much easier said than done, especially among, uh, especially in America. You, um, I don't think that's necessarily true in America, but one of the things you see in Scripture, certainly true for, for a good chunk of human history, is um, young, very young uh, adults or 
I'm not sure what you would call them, teenagers today or whatever, but very young adults, one of the things that would consciously be a part of a culture is you just spend a lot of time with older people. Just spend a lot of time with older people. Because older people have lived their lives. They have a lot to share with you. They have a lot you can learn from them. That is, that is, um, that is a foreign concept in American culture in the 21st century. Because the disparity between old and young, I mean, it's, there's such a cleavage there. And one, there's hardly any opportunity for the young to learn from the old. But two, there's just a, there's a revulsion to that idea, probably among both. And to some extent, that has come into the church in this sense. And it's, again, a very, very general statement. But after World War II, the typical evangelical church created a youth ministry. And they hired staff and so on. But the end result of that was the youth ministry is here and everybody else in the church is here and they never connect. And that now is, that whole model is really being challenged across much of evangelical um, Christianity, partially because this hasn't worked. What we've done is we've raised a whole bunch of kids who had lots of fun in youth ministry, did lots of great trips, did all these kinds of things, and they go off to college and they start to give it up because it's being challenged. Is that why the Catholics don't have like youth ministries like a evangelical Christian church would? Yeah, that is one of the major is one of the major conscious decisions on their part. Now some have developed sort of quasi youth, but it's not anything like what's in an evangelical, typical evangelical right. church. Now um, the church where Jim goes, you still go to Brookside, don't you? Okay, can you buy Brookside was trying to uh, challenge some of that, some of the things they've been doing. I have no idea what Community Bible is doing in their youth ministry, but the church I'm a part of, we're, it's very, very church plants, a young church. We're trying to do the same thing. What does this look like? What should it look like? Solomon is saying that the rebuke of wise people is a very positive thing. Have a teachable spirit. Let let that occur because the the counsel of a fool is like crackling of thorn bushes under a pot. That's what in 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 the Middle Eastern world uh, a lot of big trees aren't available. So what you do is you burn the rubbish, you burn the the, the thistles and thorns and all that stuff that are around you. That's what he's talking about. And the crackling of a thorn bush. You hear the crackling, but in not too many minutes, what's going to happen? It's all burned up. It's just ashes. See, get the get the idea of a, of the metaphor he, or the simile here, actually, that he's he's using. You know, I think the last part of verse five has some very literal applications today. And I, I have a friend, for example, who is profoundly influenced by the philosophy of the Beatles. Mm. And, I mean, you're talking about any circumstance that goes back and pulls a phrase out of a Beatles song. Mm. And, and, and if you think about some of the philosophy that's presented in some of the contemporary music, it's, it's so far away mm, exactly. from the truth that mm. and many people are being influenced by. Oh, my goodness, yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. And then it's... Some of that is then propagated through the, the social media, social networking, which just goes viral. Isn't that the phrase everybody uses now? It goes viral. 
and uh, and it, it just spreads. And what is being spread is, how does he put it? The song of fools. <laughs> the song of fools. You're right. You're right about the Beatles. I um, can I get down the bunny trail for about three seconds. I believe the Beatles were probably one of the most influential groups in the late 20th century. I really do. Uh, I one time, uh, I'd, I'd like to uh, have a whole bunch of writing projects for my retiring years here, but one of the projects I'd like to work on and, and some things I'd like to do with American history is take the Beatles as a kind of like a metaphor for the changes that were occurring in American culture. You know, you have, when they first hit the United they start in England, but they hit the United States, they're just part of rock. That's, you know, they're just part of the rock music phenomena. Now, the difference is the way they dress and their, their long hair at that time, which actually would be sort of short today, but they're, you know, the way they looked, and, and then, then their, their music starts to take a little bit of a turn, some themes that develop, and then they take off and go to, to, to the hill, to, to the Himalaya Mountains up in Nepal and spend time with the guru. Then they come back, and the, the music and lyrics are totally different. And they start to reflect a, a, um, um, an Eastern spirituality mixed with the drug. I mean, it's, it's just an amazing phenomenon to see. And then you see the the stuff that's happening in John Lennon's life, and then they they kind of split then you know and and so on. They really are a metaphor for what was happening in in late twentieth century America. And and the influence of them was absolutely phenomenal. It's and still is. People still go to the Beatles. Still their lyrics. John Lennon remains perhaps because he was somewhat of a martyr. He was wasn't he the one that was murdered in New York City? I think. And there's still that just, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And, and, and about 98% of what they say is song full. I When I did my book on ethics, I wanted to quote uh, uh, from uh, Lennon's, uh, I know some of you might know enough about the Beatles, the song Imagine. I don't know if you can, if you remember, the lyrics of that are, he envisioned a world of absolute peace, but it's really what it is. It's a world of just autonomous pleasure, and it's all. And I wanted to quote for that, so I had the publisher. They they consulted with the the company that uh, manages uh, all of the things that come out from the Beatles. Do you know what they wanted for for the rights to quote that? Eleven thousand dollars. So my publisher and I mean I said no because he said to me, "Do you want it? Do you want to pay that?" I said no. <laughs> So I just summarized it, but I, I don't know why I told you all that. But that illustrates the uh, the impact. I still, I have run across this year two people who still quote from Imagine, the lyrics of that song. It's uh, The influence and impact they had were, were just phenomenal. Song of Fools. Seven, verse seven through ten, a little bit of a longer section. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of the matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. 
did not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. I love verse 10. Don't you? Why Do not say, Why is it that former days were better than these? Have you ever, can you paraphrase that in America? Good old days. Good old days. The 1950s were certainly better than the early 20s of the first century. There's no doubt about that. <clears throat> the good old days. But what does that mean about, for it is not from wisdom that you ask about this? I don't understand what that means. Is that a wise thing to say, the good old days? You wish for the good old days. They were so much better than today. Solomon says that's not a wise statement. It's not really true. That's right, yeah, because that's not really true. My, I was with my father and my mother a couple of weeks ago, um, and I, I think I've told my dad's really, he's 90, he's not well at all. He's, he's really uh, pretty sick. But my dad said it again. He's, oh, the 1950s. They were, they, they were really, that was really a good decade. America was triumphant. The war was because my dad was in World War II and he's in the Navy. Uh, you know, Eisenhower, Ike, he calls him. Ike was president, <laughs> and I, you know, I, I didn't do this, but I felt like saying, "Dad, do you? Let's talk about that." Were the 1950s really that good? <laughs> I mean, they weren't in one sense. I mean, that was that was the beginning of the Cold War, and the Soviet Union was rolling all over Eastern Europe, and. Churchill was saying the Iron Curtain has come across Europe. China had just fallen to the Soviet to, to the to the People's Republic under Mao Zedong. I mean, it was a tremendous upheaval at home. Um, things were beginning to unravel at the end of the 1950s. But for my dad, that was, was good. I felt like quoting, "Dad, let's read Ecclesiastes 7:10." But that's not a wise thing to do. That's not a wise thing to do. Let's look at, let's think about the rest of, of this. Um, oppression makes a wise man mad. The end of the matter is beginning. It's better than its beginning. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. Angry resi- Anger resides in the bosom of fools. Each one of those, again, Solomon is speaking in Proverbs, so we have to kind of unpack the proverb. Each one of the things he's talking about, in a very real sense, deal with how we respond to adversity in our lives. How do we respond to adversity in our lives? Oppression makes a wise man mad. A bribe corrupts the heart. What will a bribe bring you? Temporary prosperity, some instant wealth. But if the end is better than the beginning, is it wise to take a bribe? No. No. No, not not at all. Why does he uh, he brings up patience and he brings up anger? 
Both of those are terms that characterize our response to adversity. Patience is better than haughtiness. Anger. Anger's in the bosom of fools. Let's talk about those two things. If you turn them into a positive statement, the mark of a wise person is a person who's patient and a person who does not respond with impulsive anger. Why? Why is that wise? Exactly, Woody. That's one of the things. You can say things, you can do things that you later will regret doing. Good. How about patience? Patience. How about patience? Why is, again, I'm trying to turn these into positives now. Why is patience as a response to adversity, a response to difficult things or whatever, why is that a mark of a wise person? going to keep you from reacting impatiently, you know, I mean, count to ten before you get, you know, before okay. you respond. And okay. Isn't that patience it there? Can, or you gonna, it can be a way in which... Mm-hmm. I'll get back with you tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, the opposite of being patient would be impulsive quick reacting uh, without necessarily thinking through the consequences of what you're going to do or uh, the opposite of contentment. and I mean, all of those things that we've talked about and have developed. Uh, this, this is getting, what Solomon was doing here is getting at the real, real guts, as I said about four or four times this afternoon, the guts of day-to-day living. Because this is where most of us were or perhaps still struggle to be every now and then. And impatient and anger-ridden people, bitter people, is often the characteristic of a very foolish person. I'm challenged a little bit because I don't, I mean, I don't see some of these as being opposites. I mean, I'd like, if you said black and white or salt and pepper or something like that, mm. Patience and haughtiness don't seem to be polar opposites to me, nor does anger and eagerness. Do they seem to be? Where am I going wrong? Well, uh, I'm not sure I want to use the word wrong, uh, Jim. Um, if you, He uses the word better. It's not that they're necessarily polar opposites, but... It's better. Your influence, and go back to the way he uses the word in verse 1, uses it twice, but good name is better than fine ointment. Day one death is better. What does that mean? You'll have more influence, much greater lasting impact if you're a person characterized by patience than haughtiness of spirit and how dare you cut me off in this traffic light? How, you know, that's the haughtiness of spirit response. It's not that that's not a natural response, but I've observed it's better to be patient and not respond that way. It's not, it's just, it's better. 
because this is what you're seeking. John, you, you were, had your... Uh, oh, I was just a little puzzled at the use of the word pride there. It's, it's not an opposite necessarily. Um, your patience, impatience being unsettled and where does pride really enter? It may be a little bit in the way you said, well, being haughty and mm -hmm. uh, using it in that, in that sense. But it um, seems a little out of context there, the word pride. Not well, in, in, in the sense that, uh, and maybe the reason he brings up pride or I'm reading the New American Standard, they translate haughtiness, but um, a wise person is a person who's not always just thinking of themselves, the haughty, proud, arrogant approach to things but thinking not only about me, but others as well as, you know, if I really demonstrate anger here, I demonstrate frustration, I demonstrate, I mean, all of those things, that, that will have an impact on the kind of name that God wants me to have, the kind of reputation that God wants me to have. That is the characteristic of a wise person. I think that's what he's getting at. Because impulsive, instinctive, it's all about me kind of responses, haughty, proud, arrogant way of living. I think that's what he's getting at. So the natural response is that. The supernatural response is a patient, not impulsive anger response to things. Because remember, the theme of this ch chapter is how do we respond to both prosperity and adversity in life? Patience, anger is part of that response that we choose to, 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 uh, to exhibit. I want to ask you this, though. Why, just, uh, it's an important question. Why is verse 10 there? Well, I love verse 10. Why is it that former days were better than, than these? What is not from wisdom that you ask about this? What's that doing there? How does that fit with what he started in verse 7? Why does he bring that in? What do you think? I think he thinks it's dangerous to live in the past, and those were the good times, and those of us that reflect on those better years maybe should be looking ahead a little more and, and uh, seeing what we can do present time about mm. making things better. Okay, I think that's good. Sometimes when you think of the past, you can have a lot of control over the past. You can have a lot of control over your memory. For the future, you have no control over it. And sometimes we go into the future with our foot on the brake and our eye in the rearview mirror. That's not an original thought with me, by the way. I heard somebody else say that. But that is, that is often the way we, we, we do approach things. Um, the, the past, that was, they were the good old days. They were the times when things were right. That's so why I, I wanted to challenge my father about the 1950s. Um, because that, I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not an accurate term. It's a totally different decade. But that, the 50s were not a great decade in many ways. But you know, it's, okay, what does that mean? Well, Dad, that's Dad's 90, and that's his memory. But even, you know, sometimes the way you hear people talk about things today, well, 10 years ago, so much better than today. Well, at one level, that's true, but it's a very different world. 
Solomon seems to be saying to us that the future, as it is today, the future is going to be filled with both prosperity and adversity. Don't look back as the guidance for how you're going to engage the future. Because past ways of doing things may not work for the present, i.e. the future. That's kind of what I think he's saying to us. All right, man. Um, I think maybe I should stop because I don't think we can get into this next section without um, going over our time. But I hope what I'm trying, the way I'm trying to do this, is is somewhat helpful to you. Because this is um, this is the ref- series of reflections of a man, Solomon who tried everything, and at the end of his life, he sat down and wrote this book. And he's saying to us, I'm giving you some wise counsel here. Learn from what mistakes I made. That's wisdom. A good parent is going to take his children along and say, listen, I'm going to do the best I can to live the kind of life that's honoring to God. Uh, but I'm going to make mistakes. And when I make mistakes, I'm going to tell you the mistakes I made. And I'm going to want you, as I want to learn from my mistakes, I want you to learn from my mistakes. That's good parenting. A good boss is going to say, I'm going to do the best I can to lead you in a way that's honoring to God and honoring to the values of this company. And I'm going to make some mistakes. When I make those mistakes, I'm going to let you know those mistakes. We're going to learn from them. That's... That's the kind of spirit Solomon is trying to cultivate here. A wise person. Characterizing it this way as a person whose faith and trust in God and seeking to be obedient, all the while trusting him because we cannot know the future, but we can learn how to respond to the future. That's what he's talking about. So tomorrow, or uh, next Wednesday, which will be August, and therefore attendance will shoot up. Let's pick up in verse 11. Okay? I'm going to pray. Lord, we're grateful for this time uh, in the Word of God, and especially in this little section of Ecclesiastes. Thank you for the good interaction today. Um, I love to hear the the guys responding, they're thinking, they're processing, and uh, God willing, they're trying to apply these truths to their life. God, we seek to be wise men. We seek to be wise men who engage the future with faith and trust in you because we cannot control the future. Uh, We can kind of control our memory and our thoughts of what the past was like. Maybe that's why we talk of the good old days, but the reality is that isn't an awful lot of help in engaging the future. You want us to be wise. Things we've talked about this morning are... Wisdom is characterized by seeking to have a good reputation, to be men of integrity and honesty, and live that way. Uh, to seek to be the, 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 the kind of individual who reflects, gives sober reflection to the brevity of life. And not just partying, which is a momentary thing, not that there's anything evil about a good time, but sober reflection on the meaning and purpose of life. And helping us look, God, to be individuals who are teachable. And from our perspective, the teachable is to allow the Word of God to shape and mold us. 
So enable us, uh, dear Lord, to be men of integrity and honesty, men who make a difference as we represent you in this world. Uh, we think, uh, as Jim and I were talking, we think of Ron and the tremendous hole and vacuum in his life. The Bible says you come alongside and fill that. Would you do that in his life? Give him the comfort of God that 2 Corinthians 1 talks about. Help him to be able to uh, get go on with his life now and live the kind of life that's honoring to you. As he goes through the grieving process, as he uh, learns what life is going to be like now without his wife, enable him and strengthen him. Thank you that Jim's available and willing to spend some time with him as well because he's been this down this road. Now help us in all the things that we do and say to be men who represent you, and we want to do that well. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week, Lord willing.